scriptures and open with me to 1 Peter. 1 Peter, it's a New Testament epistle. If you don't have a copy of the scriptures, let me encourage you to grab that black book in front of you. You'll find it on page 1014. Page 1014 in the black Bibles in front of you, we are walking through uh, the book and epistle of 1 Peter, this wonderful letter written to the church who is in dispersion, the exiles as he calls them. We're focusing today on verses 13 through 21. Verses 13 through 21. Hear the word of the Lord. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that has been brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who has called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile knowing that you were ransomed from your futile ways and inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but he was made manifest in the last times for your sake, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. This is the reading of God's word. Would you be pray with me? Oh, Father, we come at moments like these with great anticipation. Father, for we believe that your word is true. Father, not only is it true, but it is powerful and sufficient to do the work which you intended it to do. And Father, we know that we have been learning what it is to be an exile and the great salvation and inheritance that you've given to us through Christ. And Father, we get to the text today with some responses that we, your people, begin to display in our very lives. And Father, we ask that you would move mightily among us, that you would give us ears to hear your word, hearts that believe its truth, minds that are engaged. And Father, we ask you to move mightily among us today. And Father, we pray not only for ourselves, but for other churches, Father, for we rejoice in the body of Christ, the greater body. And we ask specifically this morning for Rose of Sharon Baptist Church and their pastor, Charlie Tucker. Father, we ask that you would be with this congregation, Father, that they would be a, a lighthouse, a, a city set on a hill out there in the region of Colquitt County that you've placed them, Lord. I pray that they would be a people who live daily as exiles, Father, declaring with their lives that they have a greater hope of a, of a coming day when you will return and all things are made new and right. And Father, we pray that their pastor would be a man of prayer and intentional time in the Word of God that he might teach and encourage those people, equipping them for this work. Father, we pray not only for them, but we continue to pray for other churches in the States, Father, thinking this morning of Good Shepherd Church of Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. Father, we pray that you would be with their pastor, Keith Almond. Now, Father, we know this church has just been around for around three years, Father, so we ask that you would continue to build your church as they proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Father, we rejoice that you've already told us you will build your church as your people proclaim the good news of Christ. And so, Father, we ask that you would gird them with strength, 
Father, that they would be people who live differently than those around them because they have a hope that is not of this world, a living hope as we've learned in 1 Peter. And Father, we pray not only for these, but we, we know you are the God of all people, the God of all nations. And so we pray specifically for the Tele people of India. Father, these who, Father, have grown accustomed to believing in many gods. And Father, their whole goal is, Father, one day to be born again into a reincarnated state, Father. And we know this to be nothing but the lie. And Father, we pray that you would send the gospel, Father, to these people, that you would send people from China over, Father, that you would send people from Russia down and, Father, Australia up, and maybe even one day sending one of us to declare the good news that there is only one hope, and that is in Christ Jesus. And Father, we pray that the church would be birthed as you would call your people unto yourself as Christ's name is proclaimed. And Father, we pray finally for ourselves here this morning. Father, we ask that we would fully place our hope on you, running and repenting from our half-hearted hope that we often have of you, Lord. We pray as we read this text today that we would be reminded of what we've already studied, the great inheritance that is ours in Christ. Father, this would compel us and your spirit would use this to move us mightily for your good and your glory and our joy in you. And we ask you to move now to speak to us for your servants listen. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. It's good to see each and every one of you. We've been walking through 1 Peter and it's a wonderful epistle that we have begun to study. The Peter writing to the church who is dispersed. The elect exiles, he calls them. And what, several things I just want to remind us as we kind of recap and find ourselves in our place today. First, we see that Peter rejoices and announces that God alone is worthy of praise. He says it right there beginning, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, for He is the one who creates and preserves our living hope from beginning to end. God alone is worthy of praise. And we've seen that in this call to worship this worthy God, We've also been called to live as exiles. Clearly displaying that we long for something that's not of this world. That your life should look so distinct that people say, why is it that you live the way you live? What is this hope that you have? We have seen that we have been born again to this living hope through Christ and his resurrection from the dead. We've sang of it in our songs. We've declared it in our prayers that he's no longer in the grave. The grave is empty. And because of that, we have a living hope. Because it's through Christ that we have this glorious inheritance. This inheritance, as the text says earlier last week, that is imperishable, unfading, and undefiled. And it's greater than anything in this world. And we rejoice. We become a people who actually rejoice in trials. Because it reminds us that this place is not our home. And we see today that Peter has spent 12 verses declaring and describing a God-focused reality of what he has done and is doing for us through Christ. And then we look at verse 13. The very first word should trigger something in our minds. Look there with me at the text. It says, therefore. See, Peter is moving into some very clear and very specific responses that we as exiles begin to display in our lives. And the term sometimes we hear for this is we're, we're moving out of the indicatives and into the imperatives. That's just fancy words for some things that are really important to us. See, indicative is the reality of rejoicing in all that God has accomplished for us and all that he's doing in us. So when you hear the word indicatives or promises of God, it's the stuff that God has done for you. 
That's where we spent a lot of our time last week. And all that God has done, that, that he has caused us to be born again, to give us a living hope, that he is preserving both the treasure and the inheritance and us that is being guarded till the end. This is all of God's work. Unless we think that too often we just think God does that and we just kind of hang on to the end, Peter goes into imperatives or commands. And the reason it's so important that we understand this therefore is saying don't forget what's in front of it. Don't forget what's before it is because here's what can happen. If we begin to just simply hear the imperatives or the commands of Scripture, we can quickly move over to moralism. And moralism is this idea that I begin to labor hard for the Lord to keep his love, to earn his favor. And typically what happens is there's two varying degrees. You have some self-righteous people. And self-righteous is the idea that we're continually saying, look at what I've done. God must be pleased with me. And this is not the gospel. The gospel is that God is not pleased with us on our own, but that only in Christ and through Christ is the gospel yours. But then the opposite is, is, is just as damaging. And I see this one just as much in our culture. It's self-loathing. That we are beating ourselves up so much that I can never measure up, I can never do all that it is, and God's just not pleased with me today. And that's not the gospel either. The gospel is that he is forever looking with favor and love upon you because of Jesus Christ and all that he has accomplished and your trust in him. And we typically lean one way or the other. I'm sure if you were to say at the end of every day, how did I do? You either begin to feel really prideful about yourself or you begin to be one who loathes and hates the day that was before you. And so we must understand that, that we have to ground our identity in what Christ has done. And out of that, we are called to do and respond in specific ways. And that's what Peter's moving into in this section. He's, he's, he's bringing out in this reality of, as exiles, there's specific ways that we are supposed to live. So we see the word, therefore, in the text reminds us of God's love and grace towards us is always and ever because of Christ. Always and ever because of Christ. So with that, let's look and see how Peter calls exiles to respond to those who have been given this living hope. We see it in three different ways. We see it that as exiles, we are called to set our hope entirely, fully on the coming grace of God. Look there with me at verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Christ. And the primary verb in this verse is actually set your hope fully on the grace of God. Completely, fully, entirely on the coming grace that is to be revealed at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Have you thought about the coming of Christ recently? Have you thought about the glorious realities of what we will be be brought into? We we sang about some of them, the idea that there will be no more struggle with sin. There will be no more curse upon the land and and all of the people. And there will be no longer the struggle, the struggle. But what's so interesting about this section is that hope is an emotional word. Hope is an emotional reality. It's an emotional word. It's, it's It's a feeling that we are commanded to experience and pursue. 
But the question is, and this text does a wonderful job of helping us see, how is it that we pursue a feeling? How is it that you pursue a feeling? We all have those moments when our hope is weak. And almost we walk through our days hopeless. And we have those moments when our heart and everything with pain or trouble or anxiety. And the question is, how can I get out of that and continue to hope in the grace that is coming in Christ? And here's the problem, I think, unfortunately, sometimes. And I'm borrowing this wonderful illustration from Greg Gilbert. He says, so often as Christians, what we like to do is we look at the speedometer of our emotions. And we wonder, why is it not going up? And we like grunt and we just look at the speedometer in a car and our hope is just dwindling. And we're like, oh, we go up, go up, go up. I'm asking a question. How do you get your speedometer to go up? You press on the gas pedal. That's the only way. The speedometer is not going to merely go up by longing more for it. But you have to apply gas to the engine. And this is what Peter is doing for us here. Look at there with me and let's, let's read it one more time. He says, therefore... And you could leave out those two participles, the preparing your minds and the being sober-minded. Set your hope fully on God. But he says, no, it's not just a feeling. He says, your mind must be engaged. Preparing your mind. This is the, the Old Testament concept of gird up your loins. And what, what he means by gird up your loins is, don't forget, back in that culture, they didn't wear pants and shorts like you and I did. Everybody wore long robes. Long robes that would cover all of you and go down to your ankles and if you wanted to move quickly would you do so well in that robe no they, they would actually gird up the loins they would grab the back part of their robe and they would pull it up and they would tuck it into their belt why would you tuck it into your belt because you want to be intentionally exercising energy towards a target like if we think about even the story of jesus and the the, the prodigal son it says that the father did what? He picked up his dress so that he could pursue his son who was returning to him. And Peter's telling us, he says, that's what we do as exiles. If we want to increase the speedometer of our hope, we must engage our minds. We must have intentional energy spent to know more about God. It's the only way. Hope isn't just this like thing like you find in your mailbox one day. Hope isn't this thing that like just, it just miraculously appears one time. No, hope comes through a mind that is being engaged intentionally on all that God is for us. Not only that, he says we must be sober-minded. Sober-minded. And this is the idea of a clarity of thought. Because someone who is not sober, they're what? Drunk. And I can tell you what drunk is because I've been there before. And I don't think clearly when I'm drunk. But God says, no, your mind must be one that is intentionally exercising energy into knowing the fullness of God and what he has purchased for us in Christ, the, the inheritance that we've just rejoiced in last week. And you must do so with such clarity. You see, minds train hearts that produce obedience. Did, did you hear me? Minds train hearts that produce obedience godly obedience this is god's glorious design there's sometimes in counseling people when they'll come to me and they'll be like i'm just overwhelmed by anxiety and you know my first question always is to them 
How much time are you spending with God and His Word? For that is the gas pedal that elevates the speedometer of hope. Not just reading the Bible, but thinking on it, meditating on it, understanding the principles and truths that are in there. See, God has created our minds for the heart. You cannot follow God in mindlessness. You cannot. And this is so important for us to understand because there is a a philosophy of religion and following God that is a mindless emotionalism. Now, we're not saying emotions are bad. Emotions are a glorious gift of God. Hope is one. We're going to see one in a little bit. Fear. But those are always tied to and driven by our minds. What we know to be true of God who has revealed himself. So if we to be faithfully obedient as exiles, this will come from a heart. And a heart that is totally, completely set on a hope that God has purchased for us in Christ. A certain and sure promise. We, we, we rejoiced in that last week, didn't we? He says, it's being kept for you in heaven. Not only is it being kept, but who else is being kept? You. Did you think about that this week? Did you meditate on it when that temptation was set before you? When that trial began to press in heavy on you? Did you say, no, that's not going to be my identity or crush my hope because I know what the Word of God has said, what He has declared about Himself, and it is a certainty that Christ is going to bring it to completion. The affections of our hearts, once stirred and grown, because we spend energy and clear time pondering in our minds, and more importantly, in the Word of God, it will produce, look there with me, verse 14. So interesting that Peter uses kind of the the opposite reality of the, the antithesis or the negative. He says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the what? Passions of your former ignorance. So here's basically what Peter's telling us. He's saying, you were born ignorant. The reason you can't follow God is because at some level you're stupid. (laughs) But that's the reality. He says, you you don't recognize who he is or how he's designed things to function. And, And these former ignorances, it produced ungodly passions, and that's why you follow them. That's why you obey them, because you're ignorant to the good things of God. That's why parents, our greatest job and delight is to raise our children not in the things of this world, but in the things of the Scriptures. We always are opening the Word of God before them because your child's mind is going to be ignorant unless we bring the Word before them and say, this is who God is. And this is how He's designed the world to function. So our passions are conformed to our former ignorance, and therefore they produce disobedience. But have you read the scriptures of the beauty of God's good design? That he says children are not a burden, they are a gift. That he says marriage is not always the easiest thing in the world, but it has glorious realities of Christ in the church. That the body of Christ is not merely a a building, but it's a gathering of people who are called out and sent into the world to declare what their hope is. You see, we as exiles, followers of Christ, never merely pursue feelings or emotions. We pursue truth that transforms our hearts, that produces a godly obedience. 
And it's not just Peter, right? You could think of all the times Paul says it throughout his epistles. He says, therefore, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. He's saying the same reality. And he says one of the greatest things that you have to think on and dwell on and learn about from the scriptures is the coming inheritance. Man, when I read this, I was like, I don't think about that a lot. I don't think about the beauty of what eternity with my Savior will be. And he says this is one of the greatest ways to get that speedometer of hope elevated to change the way you live is to know what Christ has purchased you for. An inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading. One of the beauties of is is even... Shelly and I, as we've had multiple children, my understanding of my fatherhood to them has changed over the years. And not because of them, but because of how I've understood God to explain this good gift of children. Literally, I used to say, I just want them to be like me. Now I can care nothing but that. I, I was trying to shape them into little Joshes. But as I read the word of God, it changed my mind so much that my heart began to produce new loves for them that I want them nothing more than to know Christ and him crucified, following him all of their days, to long for the coming day of Jesus Christ. And that happened because I read the scriptures and I would read sections in Deuteronomy, 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 and my mind would be transformed because the world says, help your child to long for this. But the Bible says, no, help your child to know God. And Christ, whom he sent. And everything changed about our family. Because I knew the truth of the scriptures. And it changed my mind in such a way that it transformed my heart. And I wanted to obey those good things. I wanted them to have a hope that will not perish one day. But one that is eternal. And if we want to cultivate and nurture our hope so that we no longer fall to the enticement of our former ignorance, the passions that we once had, we must be a people who pursue a mind that knows the word of God. We must be. Your hope will ebb and flow with your dedication, intentional energy, you girding up the loins of your mind and running with energy to the word of God, saying, help me know, understand, help me to believe, help me to work out this salvation with fear and trembling, help me, God. And this is where Peter runs to right after this glorious news of Christ and the inheritance that he's purchased for us. He says, prepare your mind. Gird it up with truth of who I am and what I'm doing. And now set that hope fully on me. Do not fall to that old man, that old way, that ignorance with once you once lived. But instead, find your joy in the good design that I created. But not only that, we see this is one of the imperatives, one of the commands he gives to the people in exile. He says, you want to be a a person of exile who has great hope? Know the word. Prepare your mind. Be sober-minded. Think, meditate, delight in God's word. And this is just why I want to exhort you as a body. There is a plethora, a multitude of opportunities for you to learn the word. Other than Sunday morning. I'm glad you're here, and I want you here. But I don't want you just here. I want to see you... 
multiple opportunities. If you look at the back of your bulletin, there's a ton of them. David is going through the Old Testament on Thursday nights. If you're young and you're married and you want to know God's good design in marriage, we're having a Bible study tomorrow night in my house. There's redemption groups. There's Bible study. And and we're going to be talking about a little bit later something we're going to be doing in October through December on Sunday nights. If you want to be one who's hope-filled, you need to be an energy in the Word of God. Knowing His truth, understanding His reality. Surround yourself with people who know the Word, who are following God, so that they can help you understand His truths. But what's interesting is we must always be aware that our hope must be set fully on the coming riches and grace found in Christ, not merely for our own sake, but so that others will see how excellent God is through our lives. Look there with me at the next section. As we see, as exiles, we are to be wholly devoted to God in all our conduct so that others will see how magnificent and valuable God truly is. Look there with me at verse 15. Flows in, it kind of flows right after this section of your former ignorance. It says, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially, according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were not ransomed from your futile ways inherited from your forefathers with the perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. Interestingly, we see two different commands that kind of focus on one key truth. He says we are commanded to what? Be holy as he is holy. And the second one he says, he says we are commanded to conduct our lives with fear. And these are two interesting realities that I want to spend this next few moments thinking about. First, look with me how we are to respond as be holy. Again, he, he continues to proclaim and says, out of the knowledge of who we are in Christ and what Christ is purchasing, we are to respond by a pursuit of holiness. The, the, those of us who are born again to a living hope, to a sure inheritance, inheritance that is coming, we are commanded to be holy. And Peter links this to Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 9, where he says, be holy as I am holy. And we often think of that, and we, we immediately go to what? I've got to be pure. I've got to be clean. I've got to be cleansed. And and that is a reality, but that's not, I don't think, and I don't believe that's what Peter's primarily focusing on. See, the book of Leviticus is one of those books that how many of us have truly read all the way through from beginning to end? A few of you, and that's great. But what typically happens? You begin to see all these what? Laws and commands and then sacrifices and then bloods and then things you can't do and things you should do and all this stuff. And here's what I I want to change the way you think of Leviticus. I I want you to understand the book of Leviticus is a wonderful book because we see God's thoughts and God's character in the book of Leviticus. We see God's thoughts and God's character in the book of Leviticus. A God who says, I am worthy of your obedience. And there is ways that my people who are created in my image that you have not followed... When God says something like, be holy as I am holy, he is calling us to be people who think like God and display the character of God. And this is the response of everyone who has set their hope fully on the coming Christ. God's holiness is the display that God is always for God. 
God doesn't say, well, this is my expectation, but because you really want this and it's bad for you, I'm just going to say it's okay. God doesn't do that. God hedges us in with the glorious laws and protections, and he says this is, this is how you will function and flourish because of the type of God that I am. So when we read laws, when we read the commands of the Old Testament and even into the New Testament, we must understand this is God saying this is for your good, but primarily for my glory. My holiness is, God's holiness is that he is always for his glory. That he is completely devoted unto himself. That his laws are perfect and good because he is perfect and good. But what we know throughout the New Testament is that we are being called and empowered to become more Christ-like. Why? Why like Christ? What did he accomplish? Perfect obedience to the law. So what you're saying when I want to be more like Christ is I want to be better at being more devoted to the Lord, to the Father as the Son was. I want to be more committed to His glory and His excellence and His good design just like His Son was. Not so that I can earn His love. Remember, this is an imperative. He's already says you can never earn that. But once you've rested in that, once you delight in that, once that your mind and your heart, you would want to begin to pursue a holiness that represents God well to the watching world. He was one, Christ, who perfectly devoted all of his life to obeying the Father, to show the character of God accurately. And this is how we are to respond to the call to be holy as God is holy. One commentary says it this way, It is the reality of sin in the hearts of everyone that patterns evil and destruction in the world. Holiness means that pattern is now broken in your life. That the sinner is now transformed into one who thinks and acts and is devoted to God, like Christ his Son. And again, we, 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 this is where we I started with this idea. This is not so that you can stay in God's favor. God's the, God does not say, you must follow my law or else I'm going to stop loving you. God's love is always forever on you only because of Christ and Christ alone. But God says, I will not allow my name to be dragged through the mud. So pursue this holiness that I've given to you in my son. Become more Christ-like. And so Peter builds this out a little bit further. Look now again there at verse 17. Verse 17. And if you call upon him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, and here's the imperative, here's the command, conduct yourselves with fear. Well, hold on, Peter, I thought... Perfect love cast out all fear. I thought that I no longer have to be fearful of you. But you're, you're saying that part of my role is an exile to display a hope before a watching world that is living and it's true and it's not of this world that I must live in such a way that I have a, a fear of God. And he does two things there. He brackets that idea with two ideas. We see the first, the language of father. He says, and if you call on him as father, but it's a father who will do what? Look at the text. Judge impartially. One of the greatest detriments to modern day churches is that God says you will no longer be judged. No, all of us will be judged. 
Even those of us who are in Christ will be judged at the seat of Christ. We will be judged for our deeds in the flesh. Not so that we can make it to heaven or that we can earn our salvation, but that we can declare we have truly set our hope on Him and Him alone, that everything in my life was for this purpose. And then he finishes that section talking about the precious blood of Christ. Two, two, two realities that we think sometimes pull fear away. And Peter moves into this new emotion, this emotion of fear. And he says that we as exiles must live in fear, yet he calls us to know God as Father, the one who judges impartially, and the one whose precious blood of his Son, Christ, was spilt for the forgiveness of sins. So what is this fear that we are to conduct ourselves in? And we're given these two things, the judgment of the Father and the preciousness of the blood of His Son, Jesus Christ. And we're called to conduct ourselves in fear of these things. And I've been thinking through this one heavily because this this is a reality, I think, that we have lost in the modern day church. And one of the greatest illustrations, I think, that can help us to understand this is from C.S. Lewis's book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. If you've never read that book, I encourage you to. There's so many glorious truths in it. But there's this particular scene, and I've used this illustration before. The beaver. Well, first off, you've got a talking beaver, which is just awesome in itself. And then there's Lucy, right? The, the youngest of the children that have gone into the wardrobe. And, and she was headed toward the beaver's house, and she saw this lion across the ridge. And she was drawn to that lion, and, and she got into the beaver's house, and they started talking about this lion, and, and she goes, is he safe? And what does the beaver say? Oh, he is not safe, but he's good. And this is the glorious reality of Christ, is that we've got to stop making God somebody that we can play games with. He is not safe. He is holy. He is other than. He is completely perfect. And He will judge sin. But He is good. And that He sent His Son who spilt His precious blood so that we could be made one with Christ. The response of fear is that we conduct ourselves as not a fear that God will stop loving us. But it's a fear of belittling the glory of God and the preciousness of His Son's blood. Making light of it, scorning it, making the world think, oh, that's just Jesus' blood. Let me try to give you an example. Let's say you're standing before a temptation. Let's say it's late at night and the families went to bed and you're sitting there before a computer. And in that moment... You're enticed to look at things that you shouldn't look at, whether it be pornography or whatever it might be. What is it that you do in that moment that compels you to follow the hope that he's given you to say no to that temptation? And Peter is telling you one of the things you must have in your bank of memory is that God is worthy of fear, that you don't want to drag his name through the mud by looking at something that he's freed you from. He's saying, have a healthy fear of me and a reality that the blood is so precious that it's freed you from this. You don't have to look at that. And you should fear dragging his name through that. 
We should have a healthy fear that God is not safe, but He is good because of Christ. And this is one of the ways that Peter encourages the people who are in this dispersion scattered throughout this Turkey region of Asia Minor. And he says, guys, you need to realize that your hope, your mind should be fully engaged. It's locked on to the goodness of God. You're studying His Bible. You should pursue holiness because He's holy so that you can be live a devoted life through Christ, by His Spirit, in that you have a healthy fear of God that you don't want God's name to be dragged through the mud. And here's the thing, you can't defame God's name. You can't. His name will never be tarnished because of you. Just this last week, I was having a conversation with a young man. And he says, I can't trust God because I can't trust God's people. And so he had a poor view of God because God's people portrayed that God isn't as glorious as he says he is. They don't live in such a way that their whole life is transformed from living for the things of this world to living for this. This man's view was skewed of God because we did a poor job of representing him well. We had an unhealthy fear. We're like, oh, I can continue to do this because God's a God who forgives. And he is. No one is beyond forgiveness. But one of the agents, one of the motivations that Peter lays before you is that you want to honor God with everything in you. So we have a healthy fear that brings about a conduct that is becoming to God, that represents He is a valuable, precious, glorious, magnificent God. So we've seen that you can as exiles, we're called to devote ourselves wholly to God and all our conduct so that others will see that His magnificence and value is true and real. That we have a healthy fear of Him and we want to honor His name in all that we do. Thirdly, we see this last one is in this phrase we see here in verse 18. It said, exiles, we recognize the high cost of our redemption. As exiles, we recognize the high cost of our redemption. And knowing it solidifies our hope in God. Look there with me in verse 18. Knowing that you were ransomed from your futile ways, inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. Like a lamb without blemish or spot, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him for the, from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in what? God. And what, what Peter's doing, he's saying that we need to recognize the preciousness of our redemption, the fact that you are ransomed. And this language is something that they would be very familiar with. So if you had a debt that you could not pay, whether in the Greco-Roman world or in the Jewish community, there was a, a price over your head and you were bound to labor unto that price. And they would typically take silver and gold and they would go pay it to the temple so that you would be free of your debt and you would be ransomed out of having to follow that old master. And he says, silver and gold is nothing 
You have been ransomed with the precious blood of God in the flesh. And this is a glorious reality for us. What you need to understand is that every action, life, direction of your life, it shows people what you value most. Let me try to explain through talking about our girls. One of the interesting things about our daughters is they're sinners. They're born that way. I don't have to teach them how to be ugly. I don't have to teach them how to... And they inherited it from their forefathers, from the seed of Adam, from the seed of me, in the sense that they were born inherited with a sinful nature. And one of the things we talk about often when we're having struggle with sharing is this idea. So, so their hands are not open-handed when it comes to things. And the reason is, is because they value what's in their hands more than they value their sister. So they're clinging tightly, saying, no, this is mine. And one of the phrases we love to help them, and we say, what do you think that's declaring to them in that moment? That you value them or your stuff more? Because our action in that moment is declaring something about our value system. And it's declaring, I love this more than I love you. And that's sometimes what we declare to the world, is that I love this stuff of the earth more than I love the God who has saved me from my sins and promised me an inheritance. I'm declaring to the world that I love this more valuable than I do what Christ has for me. And that's what God is building up in this, or Peter is building up in this section. He says, do you not realize who Christ is? It is the precious blood of the Son of God. And God foreknew him before the foundations of the world, so he knew his son, and we've already seen that he knew us before the foundations of the world. And both of them, his son was sent to purchase us from our sin. Not just the eternity of wrath of God, but to purchase you from valuing that which has no value. Things of this world. He says, I freed you from this. We are called by Peter to understand and to think about and to grow in our affection of the high cost of our ransom, the blood of the Son of God. This is not a small thing. Something that was foreknown for God forever. And God planned and He sent His Son to ransom us from our sin at a high cost, the cost of the blood of His Son. Do we value the blood that was spilt for our behalf? And the way you live this world will dictate to others what you value. Does that make sense? We become a very open-handed people. We become a very honest people because I value the preciousness of the blood that was spilt, the resurrection, the one who has redeemed me, the Spirit of God, the inheritance that's coming. And I want to tell everybody that's what I value most. So I'm going to lay down my life to make that known to all. And here's what Peter does. He builds out and he says, we're going to have a moment in our life when someone's going to see that hope and value in you and they're going to wonder what it is. What is that about you that's so different? And we're going to give an answer to that hope that lies inside of us with gentleness and meekness, having a clear conscience. We're going to get there. But it's so beautiful. My question is, are people asking you about the hope in your life? And maybe it's because we value things more than we value 
the Son of God. But I've got good news for you. We've already heard the gospel that his blood was spilt to free you from that struggle. And it's something we have to engage energy with our minds and our hearts in. It's something we have to labor for. Not so that we'll be loved by God, but out of the love of God. He accomplished all of this because Christ died. And his death was a real death. He was buried in a grave, but we rejoice because he's no longer where? In that grave. Saying that what I purchased is of eternal value. It's imperishable. It's unfading. It'll never grow away. Quit putting all your hope in that stuff that's going to burn one day. Delight in what I've got for you and let the world know that your life is so different because you're following my good commands as I'm holy. You're being holy. Through Christ, by Christ, for Christ. All that Peter says centers on their God's revelation in Jesus Christ. When he says that Christ was revealed in these last times, he implies not only that Christ is the goal of God's eternal plan, he indicates as well that the divine foreknown Son was so that we could find our hope in that alone. It's amazing for me to think about. My life is so short. And God knew from beginning of time, before time, and he knows through the end of time where, where I could find the greatest joy and satisfaction of all life. And it's not in this world, but it's in his son and what he's purchased for me. That's good news. And that's what you have been invited into today. To know that sin will always fail you. But that Christ is a sure and steady anchor. We sang it just a moment ago. In Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Our faith and our hope. Look there with me at the last line, verse 21. Who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory. It's all about Christ, his revelation and what he's accomplished so that our faith and hope are not in what? Traditions. You. The church. Your hope is in what? The God who foreknew that he would send his son and the God who willingly took on flesh, lived a life of perfect obedience, the one you could not. And he says, I willingly give it for all who would repent and believe. I am purchasing my people, not just for heaven, but for right now that they might live a hope that is so real, that's so living, that shows such value that people will see there's something different about them. How glorious is that we've been called into this because of Christ. So Peter has moved from the beauty and living of our hope in God and inheritance found in Christ to some very clear and specific ways that you, as exiles, if you're in Christ, need to respond. So we, as exiles, set our hope entirely on the coming of our Savior and the beautiful inheritance that He's purchased for us. And this desire and our value in that, it helps us not to conform to our old passions, our old ignorance. We pursue that with all of our mind and all of our heart. It says that we are wholly devoted in all of our conduct so that God looks like exactly who He is. 
And we recognize the high cost of our redemption because it solidifies our hope is in nothing but Christ. These are glorious truths. These are real truths. These are truths that we, as God's people, must begin to work out in our lives. Our lives should declare something. We should be saying to the world, as we'll sing in just a moment, Behold our God. People should look at us and they're like, Man, there's just... And all we say is, Behold our God. Seated on the throne. And the Bible calls us, when we are not walking in these truths, not to lose hope, but to run to the one who purchased you. Because maybe you're like me and you read this and you're like, oh, I'm not doing that one. I'm, I'm okay on that one. It's not what this is saying. It's reminding you of all that's yours in Christ and it's saying, when you are there, run to this one who will transform. Be a people who engage your mind constantly in God's word and you're constantly before him. You're constantly meditating on the precious cost of your redemption. You're thinking about the reality of what do people see you value in your life. You're examining your life and you're saying, do I declare that God is most valuable to me, that my hope is a real hope, a living hope, an eternal hope? So I challenge you over dinner. Think about these things. Ask each other these things. Because there is only one hope that will last. It's a hope grounded in Christ and in Christ alone. And the Father who sent him. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we come to the close.